Rudyard Griffiths here, the Executive Director of The Hub. Welcome to the Friday Roundtable edition of The Hub Dialogues. Each week on this program, we dig into the big issues and ideas shaping the public conversation with Sean Spear, our Editor-at-Large, and Stuart Thompson, our Editor-in-Chief. The goal of these weekly programs is to leave you with some new analysis and insights into the week that was. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granowski-Gluskin Charitable Foundation. Sean Stewart, welcome to the Hub Roundtable. Hey, guys. Great to connect again, guys. As usual, a double-barreled show. We're going to jump in. Topic number one, guys, has to be what's happening here in the province of Ontario, the potential on Monday for walk out of janitorial and support workers inside the public school system. This will lead teachers out of classrooms too, and kids once again out of school and parents juggling plates, balls, you name it. Uh, it is a, a surprise, I think, that we're back potentially into another showdown around labor and teaching and unions this coming Monday. Stuart, what's going on here? Why are we once again uh, pondering the possibility, it seems incredible at this date and stage in the pandemic, of a shutdown of Ontario's education system on the back of labor unrest? Yeah, when the government um, decided to impose a contract and use the notwithstanding clause to do that, I think their sense was that the union overplayed its hand and they could do this without much political blowback. They were wrong about that. I think that's pretty clear by now. Um, and I, th- But I think, though, this time the union might be overplaying its hand. Um, this just seems like, you know, trying to flex muscles and trying to push around a government that they think is wounded. Um, and I think the original calculation, I think, you know, I kind of I think I kind of hemmed and hawed about this last time we talked about it before uh, we knew the government would back down. The original calculation that parents are exhausted with this kind of stuff. They don't want to deal with political games that keep their kids at home after a pandemic that has been really hard for a lot of parents. And, you know, there's been a lot of news going around about the incredible, terrible um, respiratory virus season we're having right now. Um I know, I think we got the worst of it last month. So we're in pretty good shape in the Thompson household. But I know a lot of parents who are just at, you know, they're at their last straw right now. Um, So that original calculation, which the government made, which I think was turned out to be wrong, and they did overplay their hands. um, It still exists, though, the conditions that they made that calculation in are still there. And it doesn't mean that the union can do whatever it wants or push as hard as it wants without getting any kind of blowback on themselves. And I think if the government was sort of spoiling for a fight to stick up for parents and then they miscalculated, the conditions might be ripe for that now. Because I think I agree with the kind of the tone of your question, which is that this is ridiculous. And I think parents are pretty tired of this stuff now. Roger, let me weigh in here. Um, Let me just say I want to eventually come to the broader context of of our inflationary environment and you know the purchasing power consequences that's having for workers and 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 why in that sense um the demands on the part of the union for more and higher wages um you know may be somewhat understandable but just on the the politics of this Stewart said that the ford government overplayed its hand 
I mean, guys, that ought to be the kind of brand or identity of this government, you know, since it was first elected in 2018. Uh, if there's one uh, thing that you can say about the government is that it overplays its hand, it then walks it back and looks weak. And that's exactly what's happened here, right? The unions think they're playing with house money because the government put on the table its bazooka and then and then took it away. Um, you know, it reminds me, Rudyard, you'll remember this back in 2018, the government beat the drum about how it was going to be this fiscally conservative government and put out a budget with all of these cuts that seemed kind of indiscriminate, poorly thought through, etc. As soon as there was pushback, the government walked it back and we now have the biggest spending government in the history of the province of Ontario, a complete 180. And so, uh, you know, I agree with Stuart in the sense that I, I think the unions uh, are misreading the political environment. But I don't know if you saw Education Minister Stephen Lecce yesterday. He looked like, um, you know, Justin Trudeau talking to President Xi, trying to, um, you know, please, please, please come back to the table because he knows that he's left with few tools at its disposal because the, the biggest one, the, the use of back-to-work legislation protected by the notwithstanding clause is ostensibly gone for good. Um, this is a, a, a real set of series of mistakes by the Ford government that has once again, as you say, Rudyard, put um, uh, the schooling of Ontario children at, at, at risk. What's, uh, what's your take? Let's think about this dispute, though, in the context of what's to come. Um, there's healthcare workers uh, up for renegotiation. Um, there's the public service itself. And I don't think we should be under any illusions that to a certain extent, um, there's a reason why it's janitors and educational support workers who are the ones on strike right now. To assume that this isn't coordinated, to assume in a sense that Rightly so. The unions are putting forward some of their most vulnerable members, the members which they can make the most compelling case around in terms of wage hikes and different working conditions and different concessions from the government. This is the thin edge of the wedge. Now, I, I'm conflicted about this. We had a fall economic statement out from the government, which showed a significant reduction in the deficit, much like Ottawa, based on a windfall on tax revenues. I think that's more in the rearview window of the provinces and Canada's finances than the future as we really ponder the realities of a recession next year due to these exceptional interest rate hikes. But that same economic statement had, a, uh, I think, a buried lead, so to speak, a headline that should have been leading reporting on it, which was a projection by the province of Ontario that wage growth over the next year in the province would almost be 9%. And to me, the only way I can figure out such a high number is that they're probably having to factor in very significant public uh, service wage hikes. Because uh, I think I think private wages are going to be ultimately over the course of the coming year under pressure uh, as the economy slows significantly and slips into recession. So if you add this all up, there are elements here that I think are kind of worrying of a wage price spiral. And what we saw with the CPI, uh, the, the consumer price index update uh, for... The previous month, October, out last week was, yes, inflation plateauing, not increasing, but a broadening. So over 80% of the CPI basket now is showing steady 
persistent increases in inflation month to month and year to year. So that is a, a deepening of inflation into the system that means rates will have to stay higher for longer to wring it out. And we are going to have persistent labor unrest as a result of that. And this is just my final point here is Sean mentioned it. There's something rational about people demanding more wages. They've lost their purchasing power. They've lost six, seven, eight, nine percent. If you don't think the CPI is right, it might be more than 10% of their purchasing power forever. So unless you had a period of deflation, which we most definitely do not want, because last time we had deflation was the Great Depression, they are never getting that purchasing power back. Groceries are always going to be more expensive for low-income uh, wage earners as a portion of their total income. Fuel, energy, likely, will be more expensive in the future. The variety of services they consume will be more expensive for them forever. So I don't know, Stuart, I think there are a lot of reasons to understand why parents could be frustrated, why you know, the government legitimately could go after uh, the unions on the part of you know, bad faith bargaining. But, the, but these unions and low-wage workers, I'm not saying teachers, but these janitors and support workers are making, in some cases, less than $45,000 a year. They're staring into the double-barreled reality of inflation and, in a sense, a falling living standard, falling real living conditions on behalf of them and their families. Yeah, I, I think that is maybe the key part of all this is that the Ford government has proceeded with this as if they were battling teachers. And I think that actually has been kind of a misapprehension in some parts of the public. But I think for most parents, like I mentioned this last time, is we have sympathy for these people who we know for sure are not making great wages. They're not making teacher wages. A lot of them are the, you know, the early childcare uh, workers who are in the kindergarten classrooms that we really, as parents, we really do rely on that. That ratio is really important. Um, so I think there is far more sympathy there. And I think it was just a strategic miscalculation um, from the government. I think they maybe thought either they didn't quite realize how it would play or they just thought most people will just assume this is just a blob, school workers or teachers. And I think maybe parents would have more, um, more time for a, a battle with the teachers, whereas this just seems unfair. Sean, if you look, maybe just to draw in for listeners, what happened in the UK this week with the Chancellor of the Exchequer coming out with what only can be described as a pretty extreme austerity budget. I mean, you have to wonder if we're not kind of sleepwalking here in Ontario, especially as the most indebted subnational government in the world on a per capita basis. I think almost $70,000 owed for every man, woman, and child in Ontario in terms of public debt. Are we sleepwalking our way into something like we saw in the UK? Because it is stark. And I urge listeners to just go and check out the reaction to this uh, Hunt's budget and the economic analysis. This may literally be a decade of sustained cuts to public services. Yeah, I think there's something to that. You know, one theme on this podcast in the past several weeks has been the return to reality budgeting. And I think what we saw in the UK was the first expression of that. And it won't be the last. Um, you know, Ontario put out this fall economic statement. And as you said, Roger, it was basically more of the same from the Ford government, cutting taxes on gasoline, lauding the uh, deficit reduction progress, 
um, but without dealing with some pretty big fundamental structural problems. You mentioned one already, um, the uh, growing evidence of a potential price wage uh, sp spiral. Uh, an another is anemic growth. This is a budget that, uh, as far as the eye can see, is anticipating economic growth in and around 2%. Um, and, you know, that George Will, I, I was doing, we did a podcast recently with Marion, Marion Tupi uh, from the Cato Institute, and he had this line that he from George Will, where George Will said, the difference between 2% growth and 3% growth isn't 1%. It's 50%. And that has implications for budget, for public budgets, but it also has implications for how people feel about the society and their, their place in it and their children's future. And a world in which we have austerity on one side and secular stagnation on the other side is an environment, guys, where we start to see increasing kind of zero-sum thinking, you know, that's the kind of conditions that can put public support for immigration at risk. Um, it's the kind of uh, conditions in which you can see uh, kind of increasing nasty politics. Like, this is something that uh, we need to be cognizant of and start to advance a kind of countervailing narrative about uh, what Tupi calls abundance. Stuart, let me give you the last word in this segment. I guess just I mean, maybe it's a naive question, but it seems that you know, the government's kind of fight with this union and potentially with the unions to come, there's very little mention of public finances. And it, it, so I guess I struggle to, to see where, in fact, they've created an argument for uh, what presumably is their case, which is one of restraint. Um, you know, 40 odd percent of provincial revenues are now allocated to health care. Um, debt financing as interest rates go up, I think is, Sean can correct me, but I think it's the third or fourth largest project uh, line expenditure in the provincial budget now. I mean, there's all kinds of reasons I think that you could say, not that the cupboard is bare, but that we're under, you know, yes, in the short term, a surfeit of tax revenues coming in through people having increases in their wages and therefore being taxed more on inflated wages that have less purchasing power. Uh, why isn't that part of the conversation? I just, I guess I just want to try to understand, Stuart, what is the government's argument? It was the notwithstanding clause. And, and now I'm, I'm just genuinely confused as to how they have a coherent narrative to push back against what would be inc understandably increasingly aggressive public se sector wage demands uh, over the next, you know, six to 12 months. Yeah, I, I think this government has absolutely no appetite for a fight along those lines. And I think that this, you can see that the clue is in the fact that they frame this entirely as keeping kids in the classroom. They don't want to talk about fiscal stuff and they have no real leg to stand on there. And I would also say that even if you make that case properly and you do it well with good communication, good political communication to you know people in your side, people in the general public, it still is hell to fight this kind of a battle politically. And you saw this in Alberta with uh, Jason Kenney having a fight with doctors and nurses. And um, that was unfortunate for the UCP government because a pandemic hit just as they had started that fight and it became entirely toxic for them. But it wasn't going to be a pleasant ride in the first place. And I just think this government has no appetite for hard political fights like that. Can I just weigh in quick, Rudyard? I, I think the answer to your question is comes back uh, in a way to 
my first observations, which is this government had early ambitions to deal with Ontario's um, budget issues. Uh, it it provoked a reaction and the government backed down. And I, I think that was it. This government will never, uh, unless markets force it, uh, come back to a, a, a real focus on on dealing with these structural budget issues. And it speaks to this broader problem with the government, which is it lacks intentionality. It's too responsive to, um, uh, you know, media and focus groups, et cetera. It continues to, frankly, lack an identity. And that has continued to, that's pushed it in the direction of kind of falling into these crises one after another. Well, let's just hope the bond vigilantes aren't out there watching, sniffing around for you know, weak prey because the province of Ontario, you know, could have a lot of those characteristics. And I think what you're just seeing in the UK is just, it is staggering the extent to which forced austerity cuts, not because anyone wants them, but because public finances demand it. Otherwise, boring costs for the UK government would reach levels that are unsustainable uh, for, for, you know, the future future needs, which are real. And just like as in Ontario, our deficit spending for as far as the eye can see. Okay, guys, we're going to take a quick break. Back on the other side, we're going to talk uh, China. And the departure point was this uh, really striking video this week of the Prime Minister and Xi having some words. Um, Xi, I guess, doing more of the speaking than the Prime Minister. The results uh, seemingly Canada put in its place by the rising superpower. We've got that right after this break. You're one click away from getting access to all the Hub's best analysis and insights. Visit our website, www.thehub.ca now and sign up for our weekly email news digest. Every Saturday morning, we'll send to your inbox the cutting-edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors on the week that was... Dive in to the big issues and ideas moving the public conversation, courtesy of The Hub. Again, you can grab that exclusive email newsletter right now, free of charge, at www.thehub.ca. Now back to our program. You are listening to The Hub Roundtable. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, Executive Director of The Hub. I'm joined by Stuart Thompson, our Editor-in-Chief, Sean Spear, our Editor-at-Large. Guys, on the back half of the show, we got to talk China. Um, the departure point were these meetings in Asia this week, which, as I mentioned, featured, a, let's be honest with it, a kind of somewhat humiliating dressing down of our prime minister by Chairman Xi. Um, but also, let's go back and talk about the week before and this announcement of a new China strategy by Canada. Sean, I want to come to you first on this. The coverage of the Xi Trudeau incident interaction is interesting because you know, some people felt the prime minister was standing up for Canada, his comments about open and honest, you know, forthright dialogue. Others taking a very different analysis that Xi was clearly angry and was, uh, in a sense, no, in certain terms, kind of threatening Trudeau that relations between China and Canada were not good and could get a lot worse if, uh, if the prime minister in G's feelings proceeded with these types of leaking of supposedly private conversations, what, what do you make of it? Where do you come down on how the prime minister should be looked at through this video? You no, know, it, it seems to me um, 
if anything, uh, Rudyard and Stewart, uh, you know, the, the prime minister probably ought to have been firmer. I mean, keep in mind, guys, that um, this exchange took place against the backdrop in which we discovered the sensational news that China was actively involved in interfering in the 2019 election campaign. And uh, I don't know if you guys saw in, in the in parliament this week, uh, conservative foreign affairs shadow minister Michael Chong asked the question on everyone's mind, uh, I think a ser deadly serious um, good faith question, who were the 11 candidates um, that the Chinese government uh, um, flowed hundreds of thousands of dollars. And the Trudeau government's answer was the kind of contemptuous, kind of unserious talking points that we've come to associate with question period uh, generally, and this government in particular. Um, and so I wrote this week for The Hub about uh, Rudyard, the kind of change in tone from some spokespeople from the government on China. You know, you, Melanie Jolie, gave a pretty major speech at the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy at the University of Toronto, a place that you and, and me, Rudyard, have some affiliation. And I think that's promising. Um, but it seems to me the major holdout is the prime minister himself, who hasn't matched the, um, the kind of more realist, clear-eyed, frankly, kind of tougher edge vis-a-vis -vis China that other members of his government are conveying and expressing and mm -hmm. that was kind of reflected at this week's g20 meeting and the and the kind of genocide answer the week before so Stuart, to come to you i want to come to you in two things one how do these things happen with the media I, th this is the really cynical side of me like why is the camera there um i assume the cameras just don't wander around randomly you know filming you know g8 heads of state i mean is it conceivable that the prime minister's entourage, I believe it was CTV, uh, invited the camera people to follow the prime minister? Do you think this was something that backfired where they expected an interaction with Xi that could show the prime minister in one light? The tape was rolling and unfortunately there was something really different maybe than the prime minister's comms people thought. And then address Sean's point of why is the prime minister seemingly more and more out of step with his government on this in terms of messaging and and the kind of heuristics of his own conversations about and with China. I've got my own theory, but I want to hear yours. Yeah, I, so they, these meetings are just crazy. Um, my, my wife is a reporter for CP and she went on a 10 day trip to a multiple conference uh, deal like this. And it is it's unbelievable how it goes down and it's really, really kind of scattershot. It's stressful. It's intense. It's not very well organized. Generally, you'll be sitting around and some comms person or chief of staff or someone will come running over and say, something's going to happen. And you may not even know what's going to happen, but you'll have to run to some conference room and then, you know, some conversation will happen. So my theory, I don't know this for sure, but, you know, just sort of based on how these things work is that someone went over and tapped the cameraman or a CBC reporter or someone on the shoulder and said, hey, you're going to want to see this. And that's usually how it works. You don't know what you're going to, but you expect that they wouldn't do that if it wasn't something that was going to happen and that they wanted you to see. So um, I would say the backfire theory is probably a good one. Um, that's how these things work, though, because, you know, he, she's been around a long time. I don't think that he's the kind of guy who will be caught in a kind of amateurish little trap like that. Um, so I, I would say maybe 
maybe think that through a little bit better um, before you invite the cameraman over. On, on the prime minister, that I think that's a really interesting question. And I think even in terms of a matter of personal dignity at this point, like how many times do you have to be embarrassed by China before you just put like uh, put foreign policy aside, but like when does your disposition to this country change? I mean, his first trip trip to uh, China, they expected to make a trade deal or to at least make some progress on a trade deal, and they were humiliated on that trip, and that was in the first years of uh, the Trudeau administration. So, I I think it is kind of baffling at this point. There is sort of an undercurrent of the Liberal Party that refuses to go along with what I think the Americans have been sort of pulling us, dragging and screaming into, which is sort of a, maybe not a decoupling, but less friendliness with China. Mm-hmm. And I, I think there is still that undercurrent and maybe Trudeau right. is part of it. Let me give some rank speculation and I'll hand the microphone over to you, Sean. Um, you know, China is very big business in Canada. There are a lot of large corporations that do significant amounts of uh, financial, other forms of investment in China. Um, prime ministers, as we know, often like to leave politics and go on to board seats, sit on a board seat, get a quarter of a million dollars more a year. You get share options, you get a whole bunch of different stuff. And I don't, I don't, I wouldn't assume the, I wouldn't discount the perceived, um, rewards of this whole kind of system that, uh, our Laurentian elites have created around China of, of reward and lucre um, that is showered on those that are favorable to Beijing, who don't say impolite things about Beijing. Now, I'm not predicting the prime minister is going to leave politics. I've done that before and failed spectacularly. But I am saying that many people in Canada, amongst the business elite in this country, are very careful about what they say about China, because they know to say the wrong thing, to be to have Dr. Google push up a search result that shows you as a critic of Beijing rules you out in many cases from these lucrative positions within Quebec Inc on Bay Street and elsewhere and I think it's time to have that conversation I think in the United States they're well further down that conversation and the government is actively warning business leaders about investment in China about uh, the fate and future of their own companies as tensions between the United States and Taiwan and China over Taiwan uh, increase. And I just have a feeling it's, it's a suspicion. And I'm sorry to impute bad motive, motives here, but there's something about the prime minister here wanting to have his cake and eat it too, wanting to be Canada's leader, but also maybe in the back of his mind, thinking about that post-political career and the Dominic uh, Bartons and others of this world who've made millions on the basis of being panda huggers. I think there's a ton of insight there, Rudyard, and good on you for um, speaking directly and, and frankly about it. Because Stewart asked the question, what explains the prime minister's distance from his own government uh, uh, increasingly on China? You know, Think, for instance, just last week or two weeks ago, the industry minister announced that, uh, that he's asked three Chinese companies to divest from lithium projects. I mean, this is serious stuff. This is a government that has done... I think, a genuine 180 on China. I mean, we'll wait to see how they operationalize it, but the signs are promising if you thought for some time that we needed to take a kind of more realist view. And yet, as you say, Rudyard, on uh, the question of genocide uh, in, the, in advance of the G20, 
um, in his exchange with Xi, the, the president, the prime minister seems increasingly isolated. Stewart said, well, what what explains it? Is it, you know, it seems odd from a, a kind of personal dignity point of view. It's it's odd from a just a crass political point of view, given polls tell us that Canadians increasingly want uh, a, a kind of firmer line on China. It doesn't quite uh, have uh, an explanation when you think about our our national security interests, given what we've seen over and over again from uh, this Chinese regime. And so you're left um, with few explanations, except, frankly, the, the one you just put forward, um, that the prime minister has uh, one eye on carrying out his function as prime minister and one eye on his own personal future. It's a it's a pretty blunt thing to say, but it, it, I, I'm left with no little other explanation for why, um, even as his government seems to kind of sh- sharpen its own thinking, um, he's uh, he's being left behind. Stuart, let's give you the last uh, word in this segment and the last word in this week's roundtable, and maybe you could just shoehorn because I think you, I think you do deserve uh, a shoehorn here about our new healthcare series that's uh, launching and why the hub's proud to be bringing long form journalism to our readers on a really important topic at an important moment for our healthcare system. Yeah, actually, so we're recording this on Friday morning, and if you listen to it today, you will see a piece by Mark Hill. Um, on you know we're calling it the the meltdown in Medicare the Medicare meltdown um, and I think this is you know we see a lot of headlines like this and then you click on a 300 word story about what happened yesterday um, and I think our philosophy was how can we explain this how can we propose solutions and not just complain about what's going on as much as I would like to complain about the 12 hour wait at the children's hospitals and things like that um, we've tried to offer some solutions so Mark's first piece kind of gets into the politics of it um, the politics of liberalizing healthcare and the politics of raising taxes, both hard to sell. Uh, and then on Monday, we have a piece from our, our reporter, our own reporter, Jeff Russ, um, on just the, the really plummeting ratios we're seeing in the healthcare system and how that actually has you know, actual consequences for Canadians. So this is a joint piece with the National Post. Um, if you're a Hub fan, read them on the Hub website. Uh, we'd love to get those views from you, but they will also be in the National Post. Tomorrow, if you pick up a Saturday paper, uh, you'll see Jeff's piece. Thanks, Stuart. And just to say to Hub listeners, you know, we're excited to do this. This is part of uh, something we're going to be doing uh, multiple times over the coming 12 uh, months, which are, again, these kind of essay series, original reporting analysis insights on, you know, important public policy issues. Um a lot of this, frankly, is not happening in mainstream media, and that's not to beat up on mainstream media. They have a whole bunch of problems of their own. But if we have a role to play, a, a way to improve the public discourse, uh, this is one of them. And we hope that uh, Hub listeners, Hub readers will, frankly, support us uh, in this effort. Anytime uh, you can make a donation to the Hub, $5, $10, $15, uh, we are a charity. You get a charitable tax receipt. You can do that right now on our website. Just hit the subscribe button on the homepage, and uh, we'd really, really appreciate your support. This stuff isn't free, okay? It takes time. It takes money. It takes effort. It takes commitment. We're happy to do it for you. We're happy to provide you with our our weekly newsletter for free, access to our website, ad-free, free every day without passwords, without logons. But hey, guys, we need support. And in the absence of support, the type of stuff that we do 
isn't going to happen. So um, balls in your court, uh, give us a hand. We'd love a small donation. Uh, if you're able to, if you're not, we're always going to be there for you. Ad free, free, uh, great content to move the public conversation forward. So thanks for listening. Thanks for watching. We'll do this all again next week. Thank you for listening to the Friday Roundtable edition of the Hub Dialogues. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the executive director of the Hub. I've been in conversation with Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, and Stuart Thompson, the Hub's editor-in-chief. This program is produced and edited by Amal Otter Guzman. You can access a video version of this recording anytime on YouTube. Simply search for The Hub or The Hub Canada. You can also get video and audio versions on our website at www.thehub.ca. And finally, you can subscribe to The Hub's podcast feed on virtually any audio platform. We've got all kinds of terrific conversations featuring some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers discussing the big issues and ideas transforming our world. That's The Hub Dialogues that's waiting for you right now on your favorite podcast platform. Thank you for listening to this edition of The Hub Roundtable. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky Gluskin Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening.